phrase, cities are the best place to raise children because the cities play a crucial role in raising children whom, who embrace the Christian faith. And I listened to this seminar where he acknowledged, yes, yeah, cities can be tough. So he wasn't unrealistic about the city. And if you know Tim Keller, he's ministered in New York and raised his children in New York. He said, yes, cities can be tough. They're expensive, they're busy, they're transient. You may not be near your geographic or your biological families. So yes, it's hard to buy a nice big home. It's hard for lots of reasons. But he said, do you realize the amazing advantages? And he went through about eight advantages of raising our kids in the city. And it felt like the light bulb just went off in, on in my head. And I had the aha moment of, oh, I want that. Actually, I want that more than I want safety in suburbia. And Lizzie was yet to hear this. So Lizzie was like going, no, I'm still very fearful of LA. And so one day, I said, you've got to listen to this Tim Keller thing. And if you know my wife, she doesn't take very well to directives, right? And particularly listening to an hour seminar. So uh, we, I was in a living room and I was re-listening to it. And my wife came in and she was doing some chores in that room or something. And I just quietly left the room and left Tim Keller on while she was doing whatever she was doing. And she listened to it. And she came out and went oh my word, actually, we've had it the wrong way around. And since that day, we are more afraid of raising our kids in the suburbs than raising our kids in Los Angeles. And uh, we won't repeat what kind of the rationale behind that. We won't regurgitate the seminar. Um, Sarah's got a great summary of that by a friend of mine called Andrew Wilson. He wrote a summary of that that Sarah can send to you. We tried to regurgitate it as best as we could. All that Tim Keller's talk is still available to download on his website, Gospel in Life. But we passionately believe that this city is an amazing place to raise your children. And our testimony is that. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's hard. But, and there's no guarantees of anything. But for us, the seeds that we want to sow in our kids about what it means to follow Jesus what it means to choose Jesus, what it means to wrestle with the tough questions of life, what it means to actually not just be a cultural Christian, but a convictional Christian. All of these things happen in the city rather than in the Christian suburbs. And so we want to look forward with hope and joy and thanksgiving that we get to raise our kids for Jesus in this city. But that doesn't mean we can sit back and hope it happens. We have to be intentional about, therefore, making the most of Los Angeles for the sake of our kids. And that's what this session is about tonight, is the intentionality of what we need to do as parents to co-work with the Holy Spirit to see our children grow as healthy, mature adults who are following Jesus. And so tonight is very practical. Sarah's going to do most of the heavy lifting, but I will do a bit more at the end about actually we need to, this is what we therefore practically do. Um, and we're living, where's Amy? I was talking to Amy uh, just over the food there. And, you know, we are living in a culture where we can hear all the great theory, but actually we need coaching. Like, tell us what to do. 
And so that's what tonight's about, is literally going, these are the practices, these are the habits, these are the resources that you can be confidently raising your kids in the city so that when you look at your tax bill and look at your small two-bed apartment and look at the sacrifices you're making, you, and then look at the opportunities Nashville and Austin have for you, you go, but for the sake of my kids, we're going to stay here. So, without further ado, uh, I want to introduce our amazing family director. You may know her already, but she's such a great blessing to our staff, to our church already. But Sarah, come on up. Let's welcome Sarah as she comes up. Ah. Oh, my gosh. I'm not used to having this thing. Um, thank you, Gare. Um, and welcome, you guys. Thank you. We are... Um, a great intimate group tonight, and we'll get, we're not going to do official breakouts, but I hope you've had a chance to get to know a few other people, and um, we are going to continue to have some, we'll have dessert after and a little break time in a little bit. Um, but as Gare said, my name is Sarah Reimers, and I think I've met almost all of you, but just a little bit of background. Um, I'm in my sixth month of being the family director here at Vintage which mostly means that I get to work with amazing teams um, that most of you know, at least somebody in these teams, the V kids or the V youth, and you saw some of them out there, and the V youth is with their, the high schoolers right now. Um, but it also means, as Gare said, that we get to host these evenings um, that we've had. Um, we've had, this will be our third evening where we've, and then we're gonna have a guest speaker in May. Um, Dr. Henry Cloud is gonna come speak about parenting and uh, mental health, so we can look forward to that. So this year, we've had a chance to host four of these evenings. Um, it also means the um, having some moms and dads group. We have a gr group called The Nest for moms that some of you are a part of. And then we're starting a dads group. Could Adam and J John, can you raise your hands? We're John and Adam. We're going to be starting a dads group, so keep an eye out for that information that we're... Over under on what the name's going to be. We're kicking around some some good ideas of, to complement the nest. So you can talk to them if you have strong feelings about what that group might be called. Um, um, but as I said, or uh, as Gare said, um, I am married to John, and we have been here for 22 years, living in Venice. Um, we've been in the same zip code, but four different apartments and houses, and we have four kids, ages 10 through 19. Um, we moved here as newlyweds for John's job. He was teaching at a local school. And like the Joneses before they came here, but not post-Tim Keller sermon, we never imagined that this would be a place we would want to raise our kids. Um, it was not my choice by a long shot. But early on, um, basically, we thought we were here for like a little honeymoon period, and of course, no one would stay. So we didn't, we didn't have the, the aha moment before we came. We had it after we got here. And part of that was through um, the passage in Jeremiah 29, which some of you have heard me say this before, which was a letter that, that the prophet wrote to a people in exile, a people in Babylon. And I pretty much figured that God had carried me to Babylon. So I did a deep dive into Jeremiah 29, um, and in the early part of it, it talks about the Lord tells people in exile to settle down and build houses and multiply in number, and it goes on with some instructions. Um, but to sum it up, he basically tells people in exile to bloom where they're planted. And we have sought to do that, for better or for worse, and with plenty of ups and downs. 
Um, and we can testify to two things, just to follow up quickly before we di- deep dive into the practicals of what Gare said. And the first thing, the first advantage, the first wonderful thing ultimately about parenting um, in LA is that you are parenting with this clarity um, that, we, that as God's people, we're not at home. We are in exile. And it forces us to depend on the Lord instead of ourselves, which is actually not a bad place to be. Um, there is no illusion of where the power comes from to live lives of faith as people in our modern world in exile. Paul says in his second letter to Corinthians that we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, this good news of Jesus in these jars that are simple and common. And as I was thinking about it just this week, fragile. And no one said that when Gare was asking for words, um, but I might have added that if I were throwing a lot of words out there, that that, um, parenting has made me feel really fragile at times. Um, But this passage has been a good one for me to hold on to. Again, it's in um, Corinthians, and it's to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And this has always been the case with the people of God, that we need to depend on him. That has not changed. And so again, this, that's a good thing about living in LA. You have no illusion <laughs> that you can do this on your own. Um, at the same time, John and I can testify that the culture is always shifting under our feet. And a lot actually has changed in the last 22 years as far as the landscape of parenting, at least from our vantage point. And um, specifically, I've been reading along in John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies, which Gare has referred to a couple times if you come on Sundays and you hear the sermons. Um, and I came upon something that I have found really compelling. And, and I will read it to you. John Mark Comer writes this. The Barna Group called our cultural moment Digital Babylon. In a pre-digital world, to experience the cognitive dissonance of exile, you had to attend a far-left university or live in the urban core of a secular city like Portland or LA. Now all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi. We're all in Babylon now. And this is significant to me as a parent right now because it confirms, again, what I've experienced, which is that there's really no place to raise your kid in a Christian bubble. You may think that's what's going on in Raleigh or Nashville or Austin or what are the other, the other places Gare likes to toss out. Um, but we're living in a new age. And to have our eyes open to that is, is an advantage. Um, and it's something, again, that we've seen um, but, we, but I believe, and I'm just increasingly convinced as I do this job and reflect on our years of parenting, um, that the pr- same principles of discipleship that Jeremiah proclaimed and that Jesus talks about throughout the scriptures, they haven't changed. Even though the landscape keeps changing in front of us, those things haven't changed because Jesus hasn't changed. And we always need to remember that no matter what happens in culture, he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus told the disciples, and he tells us today, to take heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So tonight, let's look at some really basic principles of discipleship, but distilled down for us right now. And um, we do have these handouts if you are sort of a a note-taking, follow-along type of person. Um, Part two, there's those notes on the left. Again, if you want to try to take a minute to follow along. And there's, if you're a note person, there's pens in the back. But it, either way, you have a chance to take a look. 
Um, okay, so what does it look like, and what do we even mean when we're talking about discipling kids in LA? Well, it basically means what it's always meant, what Jesus modeled for us as he taught his disciples, and he continues to disciple us, that he wants followers who will love him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because of this, we have to have a holistic vision for our kids' discipleship. We need to engage their heads and their hearts. We need to attend to both their education, spiritual education, and spiritual formation. And it needs to touch on the whole of their lives, not just Sunday mornings. And this is challenging and overwhelming. Um, but I want to note something that we need to remember as we think about discipling our kids. And it's actually something that Gary just said to me the other day as we were preparing for tonight. And I, I found it quotable enough, I put him down next to Christine Kane. So <laughs> there's like a little blurb by Gare Jones and then Christine Kane. And I didn't, I have a Tim Keller quote later, it didn't make the sheet. But anyway, Gare, Christine, Tim, you know, all the, all the big biggies. Um, but he said something just that was so helpful to me personally as a mom, which is that we cannot create Christ followers, but we can create an ecosystem of discipleship in our families. We on our own, cannot create Christ followers. We know this. The Lord is the Lord of salvation, the author of salvation, but we can create an ecosystem of discipleship in our families. So let's talk about that ecosystem. And I have to share with you um, two books that have really informed me, and I think are gonna continue to inform the family ministry as we move forward. You guys are here right at the ground zero. This is like the pilot year of the vintage family ministry. Um, this book that I talked briefly about, one of our last things, it's called The Spiritually Vibrant Home, and it's going to be down there in the resources at the end of this, so you don't need to write that down. And we have some out there if you want to take one um, by Don Eberts. And then this one that I'm going to draw a lot from tonight, it's called Habits of the Household, and it's by a guy named Justin Early. It's, his name looks like Early, but it's Early. Um, and it's a brand new book because he is a new dad. Um, which I love because he's speaking right into this cultural moment. But I also love the fact that even though he, it's a new book and he's a new dad, he talks about old ideas and traditional practices and something called a rule of life, which is basically just another way of talking about our habits. And one thing that I found super helpful, and I've already shared this at the Nest and some of you were there, is something he shared that gives us a picture of what our habits are, of what this rule of life is. Um, in his discussion, he points out that the Latin word for rule, and this is my inner nerd shining through here. I love like Latin roots and words and all that stuff. So just bear with me for a minute. Um, is regula, as in regular. It's not a rule, like a law to obey, but it's meant to connotate our regular, our normal, our routines. And the picture that he gives comes from the fact that the word regula so again, rule of life, regula of life, is the same word as a trellis. That's the same word in Latin. So again, it's not about rules to obey. It's about our routines. It's about our regular. And it's the same word for a trellis. And as I've been thinking about this, side note, I, before I got married and we moved out here, I was um, in youth work for over a decade doing what these guys are doing over in the basement over here tonight and what Carly does. Um, and um, so as I was thinking about this, my, my youth worker um, brain emerged. And so I went to my neighborhood store and I decided to buy a trellis, which I have with me here tonight. So here is just a very simple trellis. 
And I did this because I wanted to really do this deep dive to think about something, and that is that this is meant to be a scaffolding, a framework. Like, that's what our habits are. That's what our rules of life are meant to be. And for us as followers of Jesus, um, these daily rules of life, these habits, our practices, are meant to be a trellis that the love of God and neighbor can grow on, can flourish on. That's the point. That's the point of having a rule of life or spiritual practices. They're this scaffolding, this trellis, that our family can thrive in God's love and for love of neighbor. And I want to share two little things that I've gleaned as I've sort of done this deep dive. And the first is just how fascinating it is that something so simple can be so influential, the shape, the orientation, whether it's leaning on something or whether it's planted. The trellis really does determine the way the vines grow and how they flourish. It's simple, but it's powerful. And there is freedom in this, if you think about it. We don't need to be thinking about running a little mini kitty seminary for our kids. That's not what discipleship at home is about. It's much simpler. And that's almost always true when we talk about kingdom things, isn't it? Garrett talked about this just the other day, for those of you who were here on Sunday, about the seed. Like those small things planted in faith, faithfully. That's where the flourishing is. That's where the flourishing is. And I realize that this could be overwhelming too, but that's what tonight is for, to, to break it down and to talk about these things. And second, the second thing about the trellis that he points out that I had never really thought about, quite frankly, is that whether we recognize it or not, we all already have a rule of life. We all already have one. We all already have a trellis. We have our regular. We have our routines. We have our normal in our household. It's not a question of if. It's a question of whether or not our trellis, what our household looks like, is deliberate or whether it's the default trellis. And again, once a youth worker, always a youth worker, (laughs) I grabbed another trellis just as an example because this is just our reality, that whether or not we acknowledge it, we we have our normal. We have our habits that actually do shape. They shape our lives, they shape our family's lives, and they're gonna shape our kids' lives. And so again, we need to decide, each of us in our little households, whether they're gonna be deliberate, like this one, and I didn't do this on purpose, but I could really like stretch this analogy a lot, and there actually is like a cross here, but it's like rooted in God and the whole thing, but I'll, I'll stop, but I could go on. Um, but it's, you get the idea. We all already have one. It's not a whether, whether or not we have a trellis. It's whether or not we're being deliberate about it or whether we have the default trellis of a typical American family. And for us specifically, a typical West Side LA family in 2022. And I guess I would like to argue that even though maybe being so thoughtful and deliberate about building your own trellis can seem overwhelming, I'm gonna argue after 20 years of being here that this trellis is actually more overwhelming and exhausting and relentless. And so 
I want to encourage us to think about the fact that taking the time, which I'm going to ask you to do a little bit tonight, to think about your own trellis is better than just defaulting to this one because this one's exhausting. And I think we know that deep down as we look at the lives of people around us, that this trellis, the default trellis, is much more exhausting and overwhelming than seeking to be deliberate about developing our own trellis, our own rule of life. Also, there's a lot at stake, and I'm just gonna read this quote from this book. Early writes, by not choosing our habits carefully, we are falling back on rhythms that are forming us in all the usual patterns of unceasing screen time, unending busyness, unrivaled consumerism, unrelenting loneliness, unmitigated addictions, and unparalleled distraction. And this cultural defect, default, these systems and habits are producing what they were designed to produce. And why would we settle for this? If we settle for the default, then we shouldn't be surprised that we produce what the world, this digital Babylon, is set up to produce. He early goes on to say, anxiety-ridden, depression-prone, lonely, confused, and screen-addicted humans. And don't be confused that this is what's happening. Anyone who's working with teenagers, I don't know if you guys heard when Johnny spoke about Gen Z, this is the picture. Again, our kids will be discipled. The question is by whom? And as Christine Kane said, again, back to the Christine quote, and she was referring to a riptide and talking about our spiritual formation, she said, all we have to do is do nothing. But I know that's why you guys are here tonight, is because I don't think any of us want to do nothing. Um, so let's dive in and talk about some of these practicals. On your sheet, um, and I mentioned earlier that we need to look at the whole child. We therefore need to think about, again, their education and their formation, engaging their heads and their hearts, and not just on Sundays. Um, so let's start with the head, their education, and look at what, what is it that we're teaching our kids in discipleship. And this can be overwhelming. Honestly, in the last 20 years of parenting, the what of what we teach our kids feels like a lot because there really is a lot. It feels like you're supposed to have like a mini seminary in your house. Like, what am I supposed to be teaching them about these things? And it was actually Johnny Bell, who's our V Youth Director, when I first got here and was getting to know him, that he reminded me of something that helps us simplify, that there's three questions, three big questions to keep in mind in discipleship. And Gare has said this too from the front. They are, who is God? Who are we? And what is the way to life, to happiness? This is, again, their spiritual education, the head. What is it that we want to teach them? And these are three questions that no matter what age your kids are, these are three questions that you can be talking about with them. And this is also where V-Kids and V-Youth want to partner with you. That's pretty much what the scaffolding around which we based all our curriculum, those three questions. Who is God? Who are we? And what is the way to life, to happiness, to thriving? And I'm just going to give like a very brief, again, if you want to just get your mind thinking about these things, these are all things we know. They really are. You don't need your own divinity degree to answer these questions. Who is God? He's our creator. He's our maker. That means he knows us and he loves us. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a God of relationship. And he's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. 
We're told in scripture that he's the image of the invisible God. And so as we think about where we want to point our kids' heads and understanding of God, we point them to him. And there's so much more. And this is where books and songs and all these things came in. We were singing Waymaker the other day. And I was like, that's it, Waymaker. This song, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. Like these are the ways we teach our kids in their education. The next question, who are we? We are not God which is something I say to my children often. (laughs) You are not the center of the universe. (laughs) So let's just keep that in mind. Um, But we are made in his image. Secondly, we are beloved by him. So we are image bearers of God and we are beloved. I have some friends on the East Coast whose child just heard back, actually we've just heard back from colleges, but they they were hearing back from some boarding schools that they had applied to. And on one of the boarding school brochures that came back, the letter of acceptance, um, one of them had on their literature, you are the sum of everything you've done and everything you'll do next. That was actually in print on a school's literature. You are the sum of everything you've done and everything you'll do next. And this is a prestigious New England boarding school. And my friends, had to sit down with their 12-year-old, and for other reasons, they're not sending their child to the school, um, but, and tell him that this is a lie, and to remind him that he is not the sum of what he has done and what he will do, but he is a child made in the image of God who is beloved. And yet, finally, just the last thing is that we've all gone astray, and we need to return to him. Those are the three things. Who are we? And we can talk about these things all day long with our kids. Which leads to the last question. What is the way to life? Returning to God through Christ and being in relationship with him. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So these are these as we think about the head. And this again has been really helpful for me. Even just now after many years when I think about what I want to talk about with my kids. It's like these three big things and they come up all the time. So those are just something for you to keep in mind, these three simple questions, any age, and just know that that's what we're talking about at VKids and V Youth. Because impressing these things on our kids is really the way to thriving. And we can be confident of that. We can be confident that if that's the trellis that we're building on, that it really is a solid thing for them to know these things. And I also, again, like to not expand this too much, but I really did kind of get a little nerdy when I thought about this trellis, which is just that there are some really basic truths, but if you look at these two things, like if you look at the way the vines are going to grow, like ultimately this one, it might look a little smaller, but its reach is going to be so much more. So it's just something to keep in mind and the privilege that we have to pass on to our kids. And the next thing I wanna talk about is the heart, the spiritual formation. Where are we directing their hearts as we look at this? Um, Trickier to me and a little more confusing, and honestly, it feels like a growth area even now for me as a parent. It's not something I think we talk about as much as I would want to at our house. Um, And there's also a few, so there's also just a few things to consider. What do our hearts long for? What do we love? What do we worship? The human heart was made for worship, so we should not be confused. It's not a question of if we will worship. The question is what we will worship, what will we love? 
And I'm reminded of a story of these same friends. They will uh, laugh when they realize how much I talked about them tonight. They're really dear friends. And they're super thoughtful and intentional parents. And as I said, just they saw this thing on the literature and they were like, that's a lie. <laughs> um, and they've been very deliberate about their kids' spiritual education, and they come by it naturally. They're educators, and she actually does happen to have a seminary degree, like two degrees actually, like from Princeton. So super nerdy, super intellectual. They live in rural Connecticut. Anyway, this is who they are. And you can imagine their surprise when their 12-year-old daughter was looking over um, my friend's shoulder one day, um, probably the New Yorker or the Atlantic or something like that, or, and it had some ad or something, and her daughter said, ooh, the Met Gala is coming up. And she sounded like a little girl from LA or New York. Who know, do, you ever, do you guys know what the Met Gala is? Okay, just make sure. I mean, my friend actually on the East Coast, she like barely knows what it is. And she proceeded to tell her mom like what the costume theme was and who wore what and all this stuff. And I laughed out loud when my friend told me this because I can very much relate to this little girl. Um, my friend could not, she was horrified. She's like, I cannot believe that my 11 year old daughter is talking about the Met Gala. I don't even know how she knows about that. I can't relate to it, I have no idea. Um, but when she told me that story, I realized how much I could relate to her. Her daughter's name is Marilee. Um, this girl who liked shiny things of celebrity and fame and beauty. Because as a teenager, I was that girl who I was growing in my love of Jesus. Um, but I had lots of other loves that captured my attention and my affection. So as I was chatting with my friend, I was able to encourage her about the opportunity that this was for heart formation. That's what this was, it was a teachable moment. It was a chance to talk about what I learned along the way in formation, which is that all of us are hardwired to desire beauty and fame and glory. And it was a chance for her to just really ask her daughter about what she loved and what she found attractive and what captured her attention. And to ultimately just take a moment and like a gentle, you know, not a scolding moment, but this opportunity um, to point her to the one whose glory is worthy of our attention and worship. And as parents, this is part of our opportunity as we consider their spiritual formation. First, to see what's capturing their hearts, to see them and how they're uniquely wired, which if you have more than one kid, at least one of them is not gonna be like you. So again, she had to call her friend who lives in LA. My daughter's talking about the Met Gala. What do I do? I can't relate to this at all. Um, so we see what captures their hearts. And secondly, we gently point them to the one who is worthy of their heart's attention and affection. And that's these moments that we have in their spiritual formation, in the direction of their hearts. And then, again, moving on, how do we continue to do this in the everyday? We don't always get these moments, whether it's the, the lie in the... Um, in the brochure of the school, or again, the Met Gala moment, maybe I'll call it that from now on. But the question then comes back to, or the answer to that, and again, something I've been learning about, comes back to our habits, these very real practical routines and habits. Um, and Early says this, and I've, the more I thought about it, just really, you guys, in the last six months, you guys are on a bit of a journey with me as I'm learning, doing a deep dive into this myself. Um, he says this, consider habits of the household as an effort to unite education and formation. I'll read that again. Consider habits of the household as an effort to unite education and formation, ways to align our heads and hearts so we don't just know the right thing to do, we also love doing the right thing. 
How amazing is that? And it actually kind of blows me away that the overwhelming task that we have of this spiritual formation is again, in many ways, very simple. It's not the little seminary, it's in our everyday. So we're gonna finish with this, this section with this. We're gonna talk about five key habits at home. And I'm gonna buzz through these and then we're gonna take a break and have a minute, there's a little worksheet on the other side of the folder. Um, so I'm gonna go through these. We're gonna look at them for a minute, either on your own or take a minute to do that and then Gare's gonna bring us home. So these five key habits at our home. And the first one um, is waking. And I need to grab, sorry, I misplaced a note. And for that, our hope is what we have here in Psalm 143, if you see that. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life, Psalm 143. And basically the idea here is just this hope that our waking would not simply be about wakening our bodies to the day, but it would also be about awakening our hearts to God's love. And, and I really did miss a page here. I'm sorry, you guys, in my notes, because I did have a preface that I wanted to say before that. And there it is. So I'm going to back up for a second before the waking. Two key principles. Again, it's on your notes. Um, before we talk about these five habits and before you think about it. The first, doing something is better than nothing. Doing something in any of these things is better than nothing. Just getting started. My grandmother used to say, you can't be steered if you're not moving, okay? So that's part of what we're doing here tonight. Or gear on that electric bike with his daughter. Just get on the bike, start pedaling, and you'll be able to go. The second thing is, as that we try to change our habits, it's gonna be messy. And there will be things that land and things that don't land. There will be things that work at other people's houses and things that don't work at your house. So as I share these things, and Gare's gonna share some things too, some personal examples, we certainly hope that you will keep that in mind. That there, while there are a lot of good proven practices out there, and there, a lot of them are based on research and all this stuff, the Lord knows the realities of your family and he knows the constraints you might be facing, and he will meet you right there in them and make the path for your family. Again, this isn't about our strength or power, but his. Okay, so waking. I already read that verse, so I will keep going. And I have two disclaimers. I am a night owl. I have always been one. If there was a class that met in college before 10 a.m., I did not take it. It's sort of the way I rolled. When I was running my own office, when I was in that youth ministry, I was like, as soon as I came in working for this one guy and he left and passed the baton to me, I was like, staff meetings at 10. Like that is my general way that I have rolled for most of my life. Um, so that's my first thing, disclaimer, as I say this. The second disclaimer is that we all know that most parents aren't getting enough sleep no matter what age. I went through a sweet spot where I was getting more sleep again, so I was not getting enough sleep when they were little, and then they would start, they finally did have some decent bedtimes and I started getting sleep. And then now that we have teenagers and they're up really late and they're loud, and if they're out, you can't really sleep. So it's just like all of us. I mean, there may be someone in this really sweet little spot where you're sleeping and everybody's slumbering, but as a general rule, we know that parents don't get enough sleep. 
So with those disclaimers, again, I just want to say that this is about how we wake up, not when we wake up. Having said all that, at our house, that it has meant that I wake up a little bit earlier, um, and it's been different in different seasons, but overall, my basic rule is that during the week, I want to wake up at least a little bit before my kids so that I can make sure that I have awakened to God's love before I greet them for the day. And as they've gotten older, I actually have a particular habit um, of being the one to wake up my kids. And at this point, there's actually books that are telling me I'm doing a bad thing by waking up my teenagers because like, they're not gonna be able to wake up when they go to college and it's like they're telling me I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, but I will tell you why I've stuck to it. It's very personal and again, it's just my example. No one go home and Sarah Reimers told me I had to wake up my kids until they're 18 or something like that. I'm just telling you, this is just an example of part of the, my scaffolding in my life. And the first is something I only just read recently, which named something really important to me, like it named why I've been doing this. Um, and there's a psychiatrist and author named Kurt Thompson, who some of you might be familiar with, and he writes this about the human heart. He says that we're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. We're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. And I think for me, I've just decided that that's kind of how I want my kids to wake up. So that's just been a thing for me, that I want to be this embodiment of someone who's looking for them. Again, this is just my thing. Um, but the, and then the other reason for me that it's been really important to be present with them in their waking um, is it's actually because it's one of my biggest struggles once the day gets going. Last week at The Nest, Christy Metzler mentioned the story of Mary and Martha, and it might as well be Mary and Sarah. Um, I am such a Martha. Um, I have a serious idol of my to-do list, and the struggle to be present rather than productive is so real for me throughout my day, and I don't get it right most of the time. So for me, that waking habit, it's just a bookend of my day. It's a chance where I know I can try again. To be waking up, seeking to awaken my own heart to God's love, and then seeking to point them to God's love as they start their days. And this is, again, different for everyone, but the bottom line is how we wake up shapes the culture of our day and our family's day and our kids' day. So it's something to consider even tonight. Take inventory of how you start your day. What you wake up to is formed by your habits, whether it's your email or social media or the news. And these habits will shape your heart and, again, your families and your kids. So that's the first one, waking. And they'll get shorter. Table and conversation. Early writes in his books, the difference between people who happen to live together and families who befriend each other are rhythms of conversation and mealtimes. I was super convicted by that. Convicted, encouraged, all of the above. Um, he points out too that basically throughout the story of God, the table and eating is not just a routine to survive, but it's a communal activity to, excuse me, to thrive. Um, and I want to encourage us to lean into this. I don't know how you grew up. I did not grow up having family dinners. John did. And we, for me, there's all sorts of, I could go, I'll, that's a major tangent, talking about cooking and liking cooking and all those things. But the bottom line is, I just encourage you to try to find ways to share meals together. Um, it could be carry out. 
it could be picnics. But the bottom line is, our table is an opportunity for not just consumption, but connection. Not just a place to consume, but a place to connect. And so just encourage you to try to share meals with your kids. Highs, and you can play the games, the highs and lows, the roses and the thorns. There's all sorts of like the conversation cards, the conversation cubes, the conversation something or another. There's all sorts of things you can do. Um, so just encourage you to do that because there's plenty of things that will rob you. This is an opportunity for connection. You're doing it anyway. Everybody's doing it anyway. And there's so many studies too about how much easier it is to connect with people when they're doing things with their hands. Like this is a thing. Like, and I'll tell you that's very true when he, if you end up with teenage boys. Raise your hand if I can get a witness to that. Like if they're doing something, it's much easier to talk to them. So take advantage of the table and mealtimes. Um, because again, there's plenty of things in our world that will rob us of that connection, which leads me to screens. Number three, <laughs> screen time. And I'm going to start by reading this passage, Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As this says, we are either being formed by, excuse me, trans formed by the world or transformed by God. We're always being shaped. Justin Early in this book said this, and I loved it. He said, the human heart is not a car. There is no neutral. And because screens are storytellers and they capture our imaginations, they are especially powerful. Where the imagination goes, so goes the heart. So what's at stake? Back to these three big questions. Who is God? Who are we? And what is the way to life? The world of screens has a lot to say about these things, and they say them pretty compellingly. And so we need to know what we're doing with screens in our house, just full stop. And I'm telling you, John and I are like dinosaurs. I mean, there was no iPhone when Molly was a baby. There was no iPad. And so we feel like we have been in the wild west of parenting when it comes to this, and it's still happening. So I do want to share a few things, but also recognizing that I think all of us, our whole generation, is making this up as we go along. The culture is shifting beneath our feet um, as we speak. Um, and so lots of disclaimers there. And again, not in fear, um, because we can, we can set the limits and we can do the hard work. And that is the first thing about screens. We need limits, and it's hard, and there's a cost to all of us if we pull the screens from our kids. But the idea there is that we take the pain for the sake of our kids' formation. We sacrifice the ease of our life for the sake of their spiritual formation, just as Jesus did for us. Setting hard limits is pure gospel parenting. So that's, that's the invitation that we have. So again, rhythm, limits, we need them. Expected rhythms, screen time might be any time is probably not a great idea. It makes everyone's life more difficult. And I will just share with you a few of the things that we did, have done at our house. Um, baseline, no screens at, table, at the table. And for most of our family life, we just had no screens on weekdays, just on Fridays and Saturday mornings. Um, and again, these are just general loose things. Try to say no to screens in the car and your comings and goings. I know we were just talking about that the other day at the Nest. Um, except for long trips, whatever, you get the idea. 
Um, depending on the age, no screen without an adult present. And as they've grown, we limit them to the public areas of our house. No screens in bedrooms at our house. Um, and when other kids come over, they have to follow our rules. When they were little, they actually had to put them in our screen bin, like if a kid had a device with them or whatever. Um, and then when our kids go to other people's houses, we ask questions about what their screen policies are. It's just kind of what's going on out there right now, and it's just a good practice. Um, and then screen Sabbaths. This is not something that we're doing, um, but it's highly recommended in so many books if you read about tech. One hour a day, one day a week. Um, these are just some different ideas. And again, we are right there with you. And I would say that, especially since COVID and our kids have their own devices, I sort of feel like the wheels have fallen off the bus at our house, but we're just trying. And again, John and I might huddle up tonight and be like, we're gonna try again to have a screen Sabbath. And we may or may not make it, but we're gonna try <laughs> to do it. Um, overall, the idea is that they're off more than they're on. Um, and there's a lot more things, curating content, using them communally. There's a lot more ideas out there, but just, I will say this, limits curating the content of what they watch and then as much as possible watching it, consuming screens communally. This guy, Justin Early has a rule at his house that if they watch a movie, you have to stay seated until the credits end. That's just their rule. That's another one that I might be interested in adopting, because then they, like the rule, like you have to sit and process and you ask questions about what the people thought. I'm like, hmm, I've taken that as a note. All right, number four, we're almost landing the plane here, family devotions. For the longest time, this was a point of stress for me. I love God's word, but I had no idea how to make it a part of our family's rhythms. And John and I did not grow up in Christian homes, so we just were making it up as we went along until I had this conversation um, with a mom friend of mine at our last church when I said, do you really make your kids like read the Bible every morning? And her response was, I make them brush their teeth. I make them take their vitamins. Why would I not make them have God's word every day if I really believe it's the bread of life? And I was like, if I had a mic, like mic drop. I was like, oh, okay. And actually went home and was like, I got to figure out how the heck to make this work. I have four kids. We're all trying to get out the door. Um, and I just decided to start somewhere, you guys. And I did this little thing in my head. I'm a little, I'm not very OCD about a lot of things, but I'm a little compulsive about my bed making. And I was like, if I can make my bed every day before we go out the door, I can do something. Like put the Bible in front of my kids' hearts and minds and mouths and whatever it is. I mean, I was like, my bed is not gonna arise and call me blessed. So I gotta let that one go. I gotta like, I don't want that on my tombstone. So I did, and we did, and again, we figure it out, but we do a little Devo in the morning. And of course, you can do some sort of family devotion where you are using God's word. It can be once a week and you have a special snack. Again, back to the food and the hands or what. It can be at dinner, before dinner, after dinner, whatever it is, again, the principle is just something is better than nothing. Um, and the last thing, bedtime, and it's sort of these two things roll together because one of the things I put on there, the devotion, is talking about memory verses, um, is that this is basically the bookend of waking. Like the idea here is that we want them to lie down in safety in their minds and in their bodies and being remembered that they are beloved. And 
a scripture or a prayer, something like that. John was great about doing memory verses when the kids were little before bed. That just seemed like a sweet time to do it, just to do the repeating. And I'll tell you one last thing about memory verses before we pause for our break, which is a a friend of mine and a friend of some of you guys in this room, um, a woman by the name of Catherine Wolf. Um, who has, is from L.A., she lives in Atlanta now, but she's written a book, and she talked about, um, she, she, had a, she had a stroke when she was 26 years old, and she was in a coma for several months, and it took a while to come out of the coma, but there was sort of this lag time where she had a consciousness, but she wasn't able to communicate. But she talks about the fact that her mother made her memorize scripture as a little girl, and that the scripture verses that she had memorized were rolling through her head during those months in a coma. And that has just stuck with me in terms of like doing something, not nothing. God willing, none of our children will ever have such a testimony. But it just shows the power of God's word and the power of setting the table for them to know these things in their heads and in their hearts through the habits of our household. So I'm going to pause, and we are at 7.44. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and then Gary's going to close us, and then we have the pub still open and dessert, but why don't we take mm, seven minutes or so? And I'm going to ask you, if you need to run to the bathroom, you can actually, there's a bathroom right over there, but take a few minutes, look at the worksheet, stretch if you need to, and then Gary's going to close us up in about seven minutes or so, seven to ten minutes. Thanks, guys. Didn't Sarah do amazing? Wasn't she fantastic? So good. So good. This is such a brilliant illustration, the trellis. A vine needs a trellis, and the trellis is just as important as the vine. And so we are this evening looking at how to build your trellis, right? How to really build a trellis as a parent so that your child can grow in the way of Christ. And so... uh, I want to look at some habits, not of the home, but habits of the wider household, the wider community. That Lizzie and I, I've got to say a very disclaimer, Lizzie and I were not very good at habits in the home. And we've had to learn that. Neither of us grew up with great habits in the home. Lizzie, as a non-Christian, didn't know about Jesus until she was 19 years old. My father was a pastor, um, but kind of he himself passed on. His father was an alcoholic and uh, home was a very dysfunctional place. So my father didn't know what to do in the home, so didn't do anything. Um, And so I grew up, even as a Christian, not knowing how to do habits in the home. And so this has been super helpful tonight. Uh, It's like, oh, that's what I should have been doing 10 years ago. Um, But I want to talk about the wider ecosystem. Lizzie and I have really lent into creating a trellis, like the ecosystem for your kids to grow in Jesus to draw on the various things and to be intentional about, great, we are curating an environment using lots of different resources to plant really wonderful seeds of faith in our kids. We're not in control of what happens, but we will create an environment and be actually quite 
well, very intentional about what that environment's going to be. So I want to go beyond the home now to look at what else is at your disposal to create the trellis. Like, what is this piece of wood? What is that piece of wood? All of these things you add together to create that ecosystem for your kids to receive gospel seeds in their life. Okay, so um, the first is church family. The first is church family. You are not alone in raising your kids. It takes a church family to raise your kids. And where you feel weak, we can be strong together. Okay? And so that's what Lizzie and I have really lent into. We've lent into planting a church with an incredible youth ministry, an incredible kids ministry, because we didn't feel that we were killing it at home in these areas. Right? We needed a church that really took that seriously. And so at Vintage, we said our church family... It not only is going to be great for our kids, but our responsibility as parents is to go, kids, this is how we roll as Christians. We go to church. And it's an unmissable event. So youth, whenever that is, it's currently Wednesdays and Sundays, they're just kind of un- unmissable. That's how we roll. And our kids have a framework for this, which is in this city, there's a lot of their friends who are Jewish. And there are habits of the Jewish community that are that are unmissable. So we go, hey, you know your friend David, right? They do Sabbath and it's unmissable. Well, this is what we do, and it's unmissable. And just like going to school is unmissable, so is going to youth group is unmissable. It's just how we roll as a family. Our kids know never to go, can I miss church, can I miss youth? We, we just, no, it's like, what? You know this is how the Joneses roll, right? We've said that from day zero. It's just unmissable. Now, that, what that means is if it's not unmissable, they'll hit, they'll hit a bad patch and they'll want to bounce, right? A friend of theirs will leave and they'll want to bounce. Or something else is happening at school which is better and they'll want to bounce. And if they feel it's negotiable, oh, my word, you're in for a, uh, a, just pain in your conversations because they're master manipulators, Right? And they will feign injury. They will do everything. If you feel it's a missable event, right? Now, it's different as you get older. It's easier when they're younger. But it's also why we've done a lot at Vintage to make sure that on the balance of things, it feels like a great time for them. That it would be different if we were in a lame youth group. Right? That would be tough to say it's unmissable because we may get then rebellious teenagers go, Dad, it's awful. And uh, early on in Vintage, when it was pretty lame because it was just our three kids, <laughs> we would go, great, Lizzie investigated youth groups of other churches because we want this rhythm of this is how we roll, right, is the church family. So V Kids and V Youth for us in this kind of city is unmissable. But by the way, everything I'm going to say is the Joneses. You do with it as you will. And what Sarah said, it may not be right for your family, but I'll just show you, but this is what the Joneses have done. Same thing with youth retreats, unmissable. And I say it's unmissable because it's the youth retreats that give the mountaintop experiences that sustain a child and sustain me as a human in my relationship with God in the darkness of the valleys that I, uh, that I experience. It's often when you take yourself out 
and go on a retreat, or when you take your kids out and go on a camp, they get those mountaintop experiences, which actually play a pivotal role in their spiritual health. They are often the heart moments that Sarah was talking about. Right? They are often the heart moments. There's a lot of pejorative kind of uh, looking down upon these Christian camps and how many of you raise your hand to follow Jesus when you're 15 and what did it really mean and things like this. I go, oh my word. Even if you raise your hand every year at a camp to follow Jesus, they are seeds going into your heart. There was something that you felt connected to Christ in a very encountering kind of way. And actually, the retreats at Vintage really make sure there's a heart connection with God. We go all out. Most of our retreats will probably less concentrate on the head. They're like, hey, you know, we're not going to go away on a weekend retreat and do a Bible study in the Gospel of John from an educational perspective. We'll more likely talk about how to encounter God, how to hear His voice, how to have the Holy Spirit fill your heart with the Father's love, and more likely focus on the heart on the retreats. So like we went, the kids went away to my city recently, there's a conference, it's not even a retreat, it's a conference up near Sacramento. And my son came back and he just said, I, I, in the context of singing and worship, I felt God like I've never felt him before. And I heard him speaking to me, God, uh, and he said, Dad, how can I keep hearing God's voice, Right. Now, I'm discipling him in those mountaintop experiences are not normative in the valley, but those mountaintop experiences give him a taste of then cultivating that in the valley, right? So Wednesdays, Sundays, and youth retreats are like zero compromise for us, except for the odd occasion. So I will say the other day, Sam's on a baseball team. We've picked baseball that doesn't clash with Sundays intentionally. And we looked at the schedule and we said, does any of them clash with Wednesday? And it was like, no. Great, you can do it. He then got a game on a Wednesday because it was a makeup game. And uh, I sat down with Sam. And I said, Sam, you know Wednesday's youth is zero compromise, don't you? He went, yep. I went, okay. Um, but this is a one-off game. And you've committed to the baseball. And it's important to be, play your part in the team. So you can go to that. As, but it's not a regular thing, right? No, nope, because we go to youth and we go to church, right? Um, and so there's no legalistic thing here. We want to shepherd our, the hearts of our kids well. But in this city, they've been discipled all the time. And two hours on Sunday ain't going to be counterformation to the ways they're being formed. We need more time of counterformation. And so Wednesdays and Sundays in retreats were like no-brainers. So we put in place intentionally at Vintage through the amazing ministry of Sarah and her team like at least three retreats a year because we want those mountaintop experiences and then regular rhythms throughout. So church family. Um, secondly, we as church, utilize your church family really well by going, huh, I want like spiritual aunties and uncles to come alongside my kids. So in the days that they didn't have lots of Christian friends in their youth, Lizzie was brilliant. A lot of this is my wife. She's amazing. She, she found two college kids who were, really loved Jesus and said, can we pay you to hang out with our kids? Right? Can we pay you to mentor them? Can we pay you to be another Christian voice who they respect, who's like cool, to just be their friends? And it may sound odd, but man, we pay therapists, we pay all sorts of people to coach us. 
We pay for babysitters just to play with our kids. Why don't we pay people who need an extra bit of money to go, can you take my kid out for coffee once a week and just have a good Christian conversation? Right? And those people have become pivotal in the lives of our kids because they can do some of these things that Sarah's been saying better than I can because my kids will listen to them more than they'll listen to me, right? And so Hannah then became one of our youth leaders, actually. But before she was a youth leader, she was a paid mentor of our kids. So um, look at spiritual aunties and uncles. Do you remember the old tradition? I, I wasn't raised in a, in a traditional church context, but I, I'm told that's what godparents were there for, right? Actively in the lives of your kids, praying, taking them out for coffee when we all lived near each other, being that kind of person you can talk to because you can't talk to your parents, things like that. Now, in a city where they're not around because we're all geographically dispersed and we're all exiles here, well, go and ask Johnny, who was some who, amazing, or Carly here, Young Life, like who are these aunties and uncles that can come alongside our young teenagers and do that? Okay, so utilize your church family. That's your, you know, that for us has been the main driver of this ecosystem for our kids. Secondly, oh, first I should add to this, the wider church family. So we would go for one, our family, part of our rhythm up until they were like 16 was, we will go to our church camp in England where it would be like um, 10,000 people where my kids would go, oh my word, we are not a minority anymore. You know, it's interesting having your kids raised in exile. Sometimes you need to put them where they're not in exile, where they're in the majority, to go, phew, I don't have to kind of watch myself the whole time. So we would intentionally do that by going to England, this camp for a week with our church, our wider church family there, where they were the majority. And it was like, oh, wow, there's a 3,000 kids here. I can just be myself without any kind of... And that's actually one of the reasons my eldest daughter's in Baylor in Texas right now. Because she said, I kind of want my college experience. She's like a really passionate Christian, thanks to our youth group um, and my wife. And, uh, but she said, I actually want to go to a college where I'm not in exile, where I'm not a minority for a season. And I felt really good about that because it's like you are rock solid in your faith. And then this is, this is probably not confidential, is it? But this is fine. I was on the phone with her this morning and she's on the phone going, and she's critiquing the churches in Waco of the legalistic or her best friend. She wants her best friend to be baptized and she's working on how to do that. You know, so she's in that context, more on fire for her faith ever, but it's just nice for her not to be in the minority. But what she's finding is she's one of the, in the minority being so passionate for Jesus, which is surprising her. So I thought you were all like me. That's the power of being raised for Christ in this city. All right, schools. Your schools, are being, your schools will form your kids, right? They're, in every educational system, there's an ideology that's coming through, right? I was raised in a non-Christian environment. Uh, I didn't know a single Christian in school all the way through until I was 18 years old. It was an atheistic ideology. So that's how I was being shaped, it's the same thing here. It's not atheistic. It's more kind of pluralism and secularism. So you just need to look at, wow, what is the right environment for my child? 
knowing that where, where I put them in school will be a significant part of their formation. And uh, Lizzie and I, so what I put here is a list of Christian schools, but you've got three options. You've got public school, Christian school, and homeschool. Um, homeschooling apparently is not what it used to be. Uh, it's much simpler and community-driven and maybe online-driven. I know some parents who do it online in their teenagers. Lizzie and I were like, we'll probably murder ourselves if we have to homeschool our kids. We're just not that type of people. So we put our kids in Roosevelt down the road. It's a good local public school. And after a while, for one of our kids, we felt, oh, this is not healthy for them. And we felt, just personally now, we felt we wanted not so much of an aggressive non-Christian ideology. Now, that's surprising for us to say, because I was raised in a public non-Christian school. My wife was as well. I went to a college that didn't know a single Christian. and I was, So we were all for public schools, and I would say for you, go for it. And these guys have been in the public schools for a while, and it can be great, and that's why Young Life is there. It's fantastic. Uh, but just for us, we felt we needed to go to a Christian school for our kids. And so here's a list of the Christian schools here. We found there's two types of Christian schools in L.A. There's the ones that have a, a living faith, and one that has a, an, a Christian name and a heritage. And so for us, the name and the heritage just felt like public school. It just didn't feel any different. It was just, oh, yeah, you're called that, but really it's just because you were founded that way. And talking to the teachers, none of you have a living faith. It's just like a public school. Fine. So we found, we went to find Christian schools that really had a living faith. And our thing was, even if we send our kids there, they're not going to live in a bubble because most of the kids there are not Christians. Because there's, there's not that many Christians around here to fill these schools. But we wanted at least, so it's not a bubble. Like all, we go to Pacifica and Calvary. Hardly any of my uh, kids' friends are Christians. It just means for us, we liked the boundaries that the teachers were Christians. And therefore our kids had adults to look at and go, which is a big deal for us, oh, you're very intellectual, you're a great person, and you're a Christian. We wanted just those role models in people's lives, together with some boundaries that, yeah, we don't want behavior in the school to go over that line. It wasn't that we're living in a bubble, because, again, non, hardly any of the students are Christians. And particularly post-COVID, those who pretended to be Christians are definitely not Christians now. So Sam, who's in seventh grade at Calvary, just said, Dad, it's, it feels like since COVID, uh, everyone is just really open and honest that they don't believe it. And that's because for two years, they didn't go to church or anything. And so we don't feel it's a bubble. We found it was a really good hybrid of safe environment, but still wrestling through the questions of faith with their fellow peers. We had to look at scholarships because we're not rich. And so we pressed all of those things. We initially went to Redeemer because we couldn't afford anything else but Redeemer in Culver City. And it was a really beautiful majority African-American church, uh, one of the best environments we've ever met. Academically, it wasn't so great, so we had to move them. Um, but again, that was a beautiful experience. So think through what's right for your child. What we realized in LA is there's no one path for every single one of your children. You may have to go different paths for your kids. You need to make up your mind there, but for us, it was we felt sufficiently sufficient caution 
not to have our kids in the school taught an ideology that would be antithetical to Jesus. Um, but it depends on the school, right? It depends on the teachers, etc. I'm just saying, like, be really wise about that and intentional. And if you do go into a public school, great. Well, is there a young life there? Can you get involved there, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Okay, schools. Number three, the wider world. So we have looked at the whole world as our ecosystem for our kids to grow in Christ. We realized that we had to make use of the world for community, so our kids didn't always feel in the minority. For mission, that we wanted to see our kids see God in action. For knowledge, we wanted around the world for them to grow in their faith and encounter those moment-top experiences. So here's the resources that we've used around the world to develop our ecosystem for our kids. So first of all, locally, it's not vintage, it's not our family, uh, it's Young Life. You know, look at the, the Young Life chapter close to you. And for a season, we dropped Amy off at 6 a.m. for Young Life Bible Studies when our youth group wasn't so healthy here. Um, then trips and camps. So here's a list of camps that you can send your kids on that will give them, I think, the, the mountaintop experiences is what I aim for when it goes to camps. And so YWAM has got some great stuff for teenagers. Focus is a great East Coast kind of um, summer camp that Sarah knows a lot about. She used to work for them. We sent our daughter Amy there. That was really good for Amy to be around other Christians as a majority as a teenager who were cool, etc. She went to Martha's Vineyard as well, which is pretty fancy, apparently. Camp Kanakuk, again, that's probably just a nice, healthy, safe environment. I'm not too sure about mountaintop experiences, don't know it too well. But um, my daughter's going to work there this summer. Forest Home do family retreats and kids retreats. Hume Lake does that, Mount Hermon does that, and JH Ranch does that. So we would go, guys, we're doing this. You know, we're going to do a father-daughter thing at JH Ranch. I couldn't afford that, but I wanted to do it. But, you know, do these things. I did a father-son trip with another group of Christian dads uh, around Arizona. And so do these mountaintop experiences. Use your vacation to, to disciple your kids. Don't just use your vacation to drink mojitos in Cabo. I said just. <laughs> Don't just use your vacation for that. But so we've, we've always intermingled both, right? We've had family, fun, so we do go. We try and do like one like just fun week somewhere. So we've been to Cancun at some kids resort there. It's fine. But we've also gone and we're going to do this, right? We're going to do this. Mission trips, equally the same thing, to see God in action, a friend of mine, John Tyson, took his whole family on what he called a revival tour of Europe when speaking to him. I bumped into him in London when he was doing it. And so they went to visit every kind of church and city where a revival of God broke out. So they went to the Hebrides. They went to Zinzendorf's in Moravia. They went to the Clapham sect in southwest London. They went all over the place to show his kids. And he read the stories of people weeping on the streets in repentance of, for Jesus where people were being healed miraculously. That's what he did, one, like, for three weeks, you know? And I haven't done that. My, one of my best friends right now, who's in my pastor's cohort, is right now with his, my godson, his 12-year-old, doing a tour of Israel, father-son. 
right? So think about the world as your ecosystem. You know, the tr this is really one of your trellises. The trellis over there says, great, we go to Hawaii, then we go skiing. That's what we do. You know, it's like, actually, the world. Go to Hong Kong, visit what Jackie Pullinger is doing in seeing heroin addicts completely freed from their addiction because of the power of Jesus. You know, I wanted, this is hard soil in LA, and there's a spiritual oppression to that, right? Which is why I'm so proud of you for being here, because we are light in the darkness, right? But there are other places with less hard soil where God is in the supernatural doing more things. So we will visit there, right? We will go and visit where kids go, oh my word, why, doesn't, why don't deaf people hear in LA like they do here? It's like, well, yeah, there's a big, interesting theology around that, but we won't get into that right now. But did you see that? God is real, right? So we want our kids to grow up by the time they're 18. I want them to go, I got loads of questions and my professor's saying that the Bible's not true, but I don't know, man, but I can't turn away from what I've seen and experienced. My parents exposed me to the supernatural acts of God. And so do trips for that, do journeys for that, right? Remember, no kid is going to stay in their faith because of ideology and doctrine, right? They're going to stay in their faith because they have a relationship with God where they've encountered Him, right? So I expose them to that. So here's some books. I recommend everyone read Intentional Father. It should really be Intentional Parent because I don't know why it's just dads, but it's really great at saying this is how intentional you need to be and gives you a framework of how to be intentional. And then Sarah's written the rest down here. And then here's some tough topics that we've had to help our kids with. So boundaries, uh, Henry, Henry's website got some great stuff on how to help screen time, boundaries, and other things as a psychologist, really good. Preston Sprinkle on sexuality. The best way to talk about sexuality issues is in the home. Um, and that overflows, and we do that in our context in the church here as well. But Preston Sprinkle's website, Center for Faith, has got some great stuff on how parents can talk to teenagers around sexuality issues, the LGBTQ plus issues, etc. And then faith, uh, searching issues. I passionately believe that I want to send my kids off to college with a robust faith that can hold up intellectually. And so I would sit down with my daughters before they went to college, and I'd do kind of apologetics with them, right? And so Searching Issues is a good book. I'd every, with Amy, every chapter, once a week, we'd read that chapter together and talk about why suffering, what about other religions, so that, but you know, now, they all knew that. We were doing it actually all through their teens because their friends were non-Christians, etc. But those are some helpful books there. Um, the ecosystem, right? You've got your habits. You've got the church. You've got which school you pick. You've got trips. You've got spiritual aunties and uncles. You've got wider camps, all this kind of stuff. I, all, all we're saying tonight is LA is an amazing environment. But you as parents have to sit down and go, great, What's our trellis? And if you don't have intentional trellises, the world will give you one. 
And then you'll be going, I don't understand why my kids aren't following Jesus. It's like, well, there's lots of reasons why. And I want to end on this. This doesn't guarantee your kids will follow Jesus, right? But I tell you this, it guarantees that good seeds have been planted. And my faith is, the promise of God is, they will germinate. They will bear fruit, right? And so my, Amy is a Christian. I don't know about the other two. When they go to college, I'm not too sure what will happen. But I do know the intentionality of this trellis are good seeds that it, even though it may be dormant for a season, it will bear fruit. So my job is to put good seed in their hearts. And that is all we can do. But the intentionality of that good seed and the ecosystem and the resources to do that. Great, Sarah, coming up. Sorry, I just broke your trellis. Going their dinner, is that on? So um, I want to honor everyone's time, and we're going to wrap. I think if you have questions for me and Gare, feel free, we'll be around.